Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. I feel very uh, fortunate that I give to I get to give the talk on the uh, the fourth day. <clears throat> so um, by now. Maybe if you, you hear a joke, you actually laugh and uh, you're a little bit settled in and it's not so bad being here after all. And uh, hopefully you're, um, you're feeling at home and uh, feel that your retreat is, uh, uh, has begun and that you've arrived here. <clears throat> uh, I wasn't here last night because uh, I was teaching a class in Berkeley uh, but I listened to the talk, um, which I enjoyed very much, Carol's wonderful talk on uh, aspiration and, uh, and motivation. And uh, she made the point that when the motivation or aspiration is tied to um, craving, to wanting some something to happen, hoping that something will happen, having some kind of expectation uh, that something will happen in practice, um, that there's a lot of suffering. You've seen that, haven't you? <clears throat> That's just telling it like it is, isn't it? <clears throat> and that when aspiration and a sincere motivation doesn't have that craving or that that agenda when there's an openness to what is that it leads to freedom. So um, the key is to somehow let go of our agenda and open to what is. This is the difference between suffering and peace and freedom. How can we do that? How can we let go and allow the moment to just be as it is? And that's what I wanted to uh, talk about tonight. The quality of faith. The word in, uh, in Pali is sadha, S-A-D-D-H-A, <clears throat> which is sometimes translated as faith or trust or confidence. The literal translation is to put one's heart upon something. So it's a, it's a real heartfelt quality that is essential to this journey of awakening. And in fact, as probably many of you know, faith is... Uh, one component of a very important list called the five spiritual faculties that really uh, describe the, the process in one, one way of what we're doing here that because of some intention or aspiration or motivation um, one has the faith or the trust to 
do this practice. As was mentioned, you know, you can't tell people, ask people off the street, oh, come on in here and, uh, and spend a week or two weeks uh, just being still and feeling your breath and just lifting your foot and putting it down, you know. It's really hard to do, and most people would think, uh, that's not for me, okay? But all of us somehow have been touched by something that gives us enough either trust or confidence or faith to want to make the effort to be present. And so faith is the first of the spiritual faculties which leads to the effort to be mindful. Effort is the second of the spiritual faculties and mindfulness as the effort to be present um, keeps building, you become more mindful. The third quality, mindfulness um, over time, consistent, very uh, continuous and patient and uh, skillful application of mindfulness leads to concentration. And with that concentration, that focused awareness that cuts through our usual confusion, it dawns as wisdom, the fifth faculty. But it all starts with some kind of heartfelt willingness to be here. <clears throat> One other uh, thing to mention uh, about those five faculties before focusing on faith is that um, they, are, they balance each other. Mindfulness is the balancing factor and energy, effort is, ba- is balanced with concentration. And wisdom is balanced with faith. If there's too much wisdom in the sense of an analysis, uh, uh, an investigative um, looking and wanting to understand, but there's not enough heartfelt energy to balance it, it becomes very cerebral and actually can lead to doubt. But if there's too much faith and not enough wisdom, then it becomes blind faith and you don't see clearly for yourself. So those faculties work beautifully together. But it it all starts with faith. Because we have some kind of um, trust or confidence or faith, and I'll use the three interchangeably just in case the word faith trips up some old you know, history in you. Oh no, faith, I thought I got out of that and when I went to Sunday school and finally left. And, uh, just notice if the word does anything to you and you can retranslate it as either trust or confidence or some kind of heartfelt willingness to be here, to put one's heart into the practice. Uh, it all starts with this sense of sadha because when we have that, we're, we're willing to let go of the agenda, willing to let go of our expectation and hope what might happen to just see what's going to happen next or what's happening now, even better. <clears throat> now, sometimes when you hear the word faith, um, there's a, the idea that 
if you have enough faith, everything's going to turn out just the way you want. And that's not what we're talking about, because that's not how life is, is it? Even the most sincere and pure heart doesn't get it the way they want it all the time. Because there is this truth of the first, this first noble truth that there is suffering in life. There's no way around that. So it's helpful to, to rearrange the thinking and instead of having the idea that things will turn out just fine, it's more that everything is workable. That you can meet this moment with an awareness that can respond wisely, that can have a, a sincere and good-hearted, wise attention that sees what's going on and then can meet it without confusion and fear and aversion, but just sees, oh, this is what's happening here. How can I wake up to this moment? And in that regard, it's not so much future-oriented, oh, everything will work out just fine. It's more a matter, and Carol mentioned this a little bit uh, last night, of trusting in the awareness that when the moment comes, it will know how to respond. And the best way to do that, obviously, is by meeting this moment in that same way. And as you cultivate that attitude more and more, it's more available to you, and you see all the other moments have been met with awareness. Maybe the same will be true in the future when that comes. So it's not so much trusting in yourself. I remember going to an interview once. I was having this bout of uh, lots of doubt and uh, mostly about myself and about my you know, abilities and my uh, capacities. And I was reminded it's not a matter that I have to be up to the task, but rather that I can trust in the awareness that can meet the moment. I can trust in the process, the natural unfolding of the process, without me thinking, I've got to make it happen. And it's a tremendous relief to realize you don't have to make the process happen. What a burden it is to think, I've got to make my retreat work just right. That's a a 24-7 futile enterprise. And in fact, it's completely counterproductive to what we're doing here. It's not you doing it at all, but rather showing up and seeing what's here. I I came across this quote from uh, Christmas Humphreys, who wrote a lot about Buddhism. He said, Uh, along these lines. He says, the the one miracle that this path has to offer is a change of heart. It really made sense to me. It struck me deeply. It's not the miracle 
that everything will turn out peachy keen. It's that we can bring a wisdom to each moment. And with that, we let go of our hopes and agendas. I came across another quote from uh, Seneca, the Roman uh, sage. He said, we cease to be afraid when we cease to hope. Because hope is always accompanied by fear. Now, one would think hope is not a bad thing to have, you know, and sometimes it's all we have. And I know that I start off most letters, I hope you're well, and I hope you're doing fine, and I hope, you know, in that regard, it's just a kind of well-wishing, a, a kind of metta. But when we hope that something happens, although there can be a wholesomeness to it, if you take a close look, there, there can be a subtle fear. What if it doesn't happen? And that's different from faith. The, that's, the, this kind of sada is just a trust that whatever happens will be okay, will be workable. And there's a, a tremendous power in that, in that letting go of you making it happen. You know, Jesus said, if you had enough faith, you could move mountains. There might be something to that. Because when it's you letting go of doing it, it's like you tap into this source of energy, this deep, vast, mysterious energy of life that manifests through you. But it means you having to let go of being the doer. <clears throat> and when you have that quality of faith, and I'm sure everybody here knows that, or if you can think of it as confidence, it, it's almost like you're, you're being pushed from behind. You know, It's not like, oh, I hope it happens. It's like, yes. You know that, that, that big, capital, bold, yes? that sometimes come th comes through us in our hearts, that just says, yes. And for some magical moments, you just get out of the way and you know that it's possible. And it's like you are out of the way, that's why it's possible. So you tap into a real power when, when you can tune into that. In the Third Zen Patriarch, it's... Uh, which is uh, the, the, real, the title of the Third Zen Patriarch, this beautiful treatise in wisdom. It says, it's called Verses on the Faith Mind. And there's this one line in there that I love. It says, the non-dual is one with the trusting mind. That when it's no longer me and contending with life, when there is complete non-duality, it is one with the trusting mind. Now, faith is the antidote to doubt, that old companion that visits us from time to time. And usually around this time, there's a, a talk on the hindrances. And because you're mostly a, um, 
a group that has done lots of retreats and heard lots of hindrance talks. We won't go into a formal hindrance talk, but I'll give you just a little mini hindrance talk right now, <laughs> and just as a little pep talk in case you kind of forgot. <laughs> Those old companions of wanting, attachment, aversion, dullness, classically called sloth and torpor, restlessness or agitation, and doubt. They come to everyone who practices. Sometimes you get what is called a multiple hindrance attack and you kind of get a whole lot of them at the same time, like a big party, uh, and your dessert. So it's useful to remember that they are a common experience. And if you have the idea, oh, gosh, you know, why is this happening here? You know, I should be a hindrance-free yogi. Um, You're missing the point. Until you are free of greed, hatred, and delusion, the hindrances will be there. And so... The idea is that you don't have to take them personally. As long as people have had minds and hearts, they've been talked about. They are not yours. You don't have any control over them. You don't say, gee, I could go for a good round of doubt right now. You know? <laughs> it just comes. Now that might seem discouraging, but actually it's very freeing to realize you don't have control over it. So it's not your problem. You don't have to blame yourself for them coming. They just come all by themselves. They're completely impersonal, and they're also impermanent. Isn't that great? That's the great news about impermanence, you know. (laughs) It's not only the good stuff that goes, it's the yucky stuff that comes and goes. And if you can remember that, there's a, a kind of Uh, confidence and trust. Oh yeah, I can meet this one too. Just before I I move on to particularly focusing on doubt and and faith, um, the main strategy as a reminder for dealing with all the hindrances or these difficult energies is to not take them personally and let yourself open up and become familiar with them. This is your laboratory. You know that line the Buddha says, in this fathom-long body, the whole of the Dharma is revealed. This is your laboratory to understand what it means to be angry or restless or attached or doubting. And so you just let yourself feel it for a little while. And in that opening up and investigating, it loses its power to frighten and confuse, and you wake up to it. But I just want to talk particularly about doubt for a moment. It is, in some ways, the most incapacitating of of all of them, because when you're besieged by doubt, you just don't have the energy to try. You just assume it's not going to work, and you get lost in this morass of confusion. The the image is uh, somebody 
taking a, 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 a stick and churning up all the mud in, in water and you can't see clearly. Seeing clearly would be mindfulness and doubt is like churning up and becoming very muddy and unclear. It's really painful. It suffocates our confidence. But it comes to everyone. Even the Buddha had doubt. You know, that was the last thing that visited him before he was enlightened. Mara coming to confuse him and seduce him with lovely images of, of nymphs and then frighten him with armies of warriors shooting arrows at him. Didn't touch him. And then the last thing, his, la- his trump card, Mara's trump card is, what makes you think you have the right to become enlightened? It's the last one. And as you well know, the Buddha touches his hand down to the ground and says, as the earth is my witness, all the work that I've been doing in all these lifetimes, I have a right to be free. And then, boom, he opens up. Jesus also had doubt. There, his last moments on the cross, why hast thou forsaken me? So you've got some good company if a few moments of doubt come up anyway. Not to take it personally. I want to uh, look at the ways that we can cultivate faith and then um, just the different elements of it, how it works when when we have it. There's a number of sources of faith that I'm sure we can all um, access and get in touch with. <clears throat> the, the most common initial source of faith is what's called bright faith. We get inspired by somebody or something. Maybe we hear a tape of a talk or read a book or you know see the Dalai Lama or somehow we're touched by maybe a good friend who's come back glowing from a retreat and saying this is it I really found something here and you just are so moved by what the experience is that you say wow yes maybe there's a way I remember when I first, um, the first book I ever read on uh, spiritual, the spiritual life was Autobiography of a Yogi by Yogananda. And um, a friend said, you should check this out. And uh, I read it and the first, in the first three pages there's like, you know, 25 amazing miracles, you know. And I, I'm starting saying, yeah, right, you know. Come on, right. But it just keeps on going, you know, one after another, you know. And by around page 12 or 15, I was saying, really? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And he was just saying matter-of-factly what happened. And there, there was a ring of truth. I thought, wow, I wonder. I wonder if there's something else going on here than meets the eye. And I then read Be Here Now, which for me was, was really the, the 
true awakening or initial awakening to this is what I've been looking for. And then I remember coming to Naropa Institute the first summer in 1974 when uh, Joseph first started teaching in, uh, in the States after being in India for a number of years. And hearing him, after the first 10 minutes I was saying, so this is the great guru. He didn't quite fit my image of <laughs> the noble spiritual guru. He sounded like he was from New York. I was from Queens, you know. And he was just a little bit older than I was, maybe a couple of years, and he didn't have that you know, regal demeanor. But after about ten minutes, I just listened to what he was saying, and I, I knew he knew something that I wanted to know. And because it wasn't that different, he was wasn't that different from me. I thought, gosh, maybe. If he did it, maybe I could do it too. And I just went for it. Do you remember what it was for you? Just think back. It's, it's such a, a precious gift, that first turn on, that says, yes, maybe there's another way. Maybe there really is happiness available. Well, that is bright faith. An inspiration. One, one of the words of the Buddha, uh, one line of the Buddha that has been a great inspiration to me uh, is him saying, if it were not possible to free the mind of greed, hatred, and delusion, I would not tell you to do so. Just very matter of fact, if it were not possible to free the mind of greed, hatred, and delusion, I would not tell you to do so. But it is possible, and this is why I teach. Whatever it is that that touches you, gets you to start exploring, and maybe reasoning, and then just seeing, yeah, well, that that makes sense. But then you have to do the work. And the other sources of faith after the inspiration, the classical ones, which we started the retreat with, were taking refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma, and in the Sangha. Taking refuge in the Buddha. And when you think of the word refuge even, it's like, yeah, you can put your heart upon that, you can feel protected, you can feel safe, you can feel held. This is something I can surrender to and, and, and trust in. Taking refuge in the Buddha, the Buddha's example, Gotama Buddha, we can be very inspired by what he attained, that somehow he came to the end of suffering and his words have a ring of truth to them that, that's undeniable as you more and more see for yourself Yes, and that's, that's the beauty of his message. Look for yourself. Don't take my words for it. Come and see for yourself. Ehi pasiko. Come and look for yourself. And it's possible. But even more fundamentally, in taking refuge in the Buddha, we acknowledge our own capacity to awaken. He wasn't just 
giving a teaching so that he could have followers. He didn't want that. In fact, one follower who was so enthralled by the Buddha and and uh, you know was the ultimate uh, Dharma groupie and just following him around, he 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 kicked him out of the order. He said, "No, no, no, you don't you don't understand." And this guy Vakali was about to commit suicide because his his beloved had rejected him when the Buddha appeared and said, you can look at this form for a hundred years and still not see the Buddha. One who sees the Dharma sees the Buddha. And with that, as good stories go, Makali came back in the order and ended up being fully enlightened. So when we're taking refuge in the Buddha, we're really taking refuge in our own capacity to awaken. And it's here in all of us. We all have that seed of enlightenment, that bodhicitta, that heart of enlightenment that is waiting to be heard, waiting to be awakened. This is a a very powerful reflection that gives us trust and confidence, particularly if we've, we've seen just a glimpse of it even. Then there's taking refuge in the Dharma, in the truth of how things are. That is some understanding of the teachings that there is a natural order to things. There is a perfection in life. There is a trust in the lawful unfolding of life and that it is freeing as we tap into it. And you see for yourself the truth of the basic reality of impermanence, of change. As you see that more and more, as you understand that, you have more of an ability to let go. And sometimes the the insights sneak up on you when you're not even realizing it. They're, they're there. On one retreat, it was my second retreat, and I was filled with doubt. I was a phony. Everybody around didn't know what they were doing. The teachers didn't know what they were doing, and it was just really, you know, it was all bizarre, and I wanted out. And I, um, I was so frustrated, I couldn't sit, and I, so I walked, I couldn't walk, and it was like I was a, you know, just a caged tiger back and forth. And finally I just said, I've got to cool out. And I went up to my little cubicle in uh, this retreat center in southern Washington. And there on my, um, on my dresser was a picture of Neem Karoli Baba, the guru from Be Here Now, who, as I said, is really an inspiration to me. And he was smiling at me, looking with this, you know, big grin on his face, saying, hmm, taking things pretty seriously, aren't we, you know? And in a moment, just seeing that, uh, seeing the twinkle in his, in his face, just dispelled the whole doubt for a moment. And I got really excited. Wow, I conquered doubt. You know? <laughs> I couldn't wait to tell Joseph, my teacher. But unfortunately, the interview was like about eight hours later. And f- between that moment of conquering doubt I then got very exhilarated 
and high, and then I got kind of spun out, and then exhausted, and then confused, and I thought I lost it, and then I went. Finally, I got to the, the interview, and, uh, and he said, so, what's happening? And I, I sighed in complete exasperation and innocence. It's always changing. <laughs> and he said, that's it. You got it. I thought, oh yeah, I've heard those words before. You know, That's it. That's what they're talking about. It really is always changing. And it just kind of snuck up from behind. <laughs> Taking refuge in the Dharma is really seeing... The, the dukkha of holding on and the freedom, even if it be, it's initially intellectual, in letting go. And then there's faith in the Sangha, refuge in the Sangha, that so many people, thousands of people over the last thousands of years, have walked this path and actually come to freedom. You're not doing it alone. You are part of a grand lineage of committed practitioners who are on this quest for freedom. So those are wonderful sources of faith, the triple gem. The most powerful source of faith is our own experience, our own verified experience. Once you see for yourself, no one can take that away. Like that story I just told. What have you seen for yourself that you know to be true about life, about impermanence, about how suffering is created, about the possibility of ease and release. And that's what these, this retreat is about, you discovering yourself. The talks, in some ways, are kind of like the, um, the people up here are somehow, one way I see it, conveying the faith that we have in the practice so that you are reminded of the faith that you have, or the trust, and you see for yourself, and your own faith deepens. What do you know to be true? I remember on, uh, there's, there was this one guy, this, there's this one fellow, actually he just called me a couple of days ago, I think he lives out in Oklahoma, and for years he, um, he would say, you know, I just can't get concentrated, nothing's happening, and but he kept on doing it. He was very, very sincere yogi. Um, and uh, this is af- after about 10 or 12 years of practice, he came to one retreat and he said, well, you know, something very interesting happened a couple of uh, weeks ago. I had um, heart surgery. And I thought, whoa, that's pretty intense. He said, it went well. And then there were some complications after the uh, surgery. Um, and uh, at some point my heart was racing and the machines were going all over the place and I just thought to myself be with the breath be with the breath and 
if I die, it's just the next moment. And he, I said, boy, all those years you were wondering if something was happening? And I, <laughs> and that's how it works. It doesn't, we can't keep score and see, oh yeah, it's doing well, it's the way it should be, but it somehow happens just by our sincerity of intention. Our own experience is the proof of the pudding. That's our greatest source of faith. So now, I want to talk a bit about some of the elements of faith, the ways that sadha works. One aspect of it, when we're in touch with it, it it gives us courage. It gives us, the word courage also has to do with the heart. Uh, a, A lion heart that can enter into new territory it gives us courage to take risks and to expand our limits. It gives us courage to open up to our fears. Really, fear is the doorway to awakening. It might be the last thing that we want to get in touch with, but fear is really an ally in practice. And it's necessary to come to terms in some way with fear and usually when we do, it is the, the initiation, rite of passage. You know, you remember in uh, um, Empire Strikes Back, you know, the star, second Star Wars? So I love this scene. It's like uh, um, Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey on film. And there's Luke Skywalker uh, in training with Yoda, you know. And he gives him all the training he can, and then finally Yoda says, and now you have to go inside into that cave and face your greatest fear. That's your, your final exam. You know, and there you know, Luke goes in with his lightsaber, and there's this you know, huge demon of his mind. You know, and fortunately for the Force, uh, he comes out, and that's his initiation. And that's how it works. You come out alive, you know. But when you have your fear, it's not like it's a problem. It's really, it's the, it's the, the membrane between what's familiar and safe and new territory. Jack has a great way of putting it, Jack Hornfield. He says, fear is really saying, about to grow. (laughs) So rather than thinking of it as the enemy, it's really inviting you to the new new territory. This is a a passage, it was in Tricycle, from Ajahn Chah, account of of his his practice. He was terrified of ghosts, as many Thais are, and he decided to have practice sitting by a charnel ground and being with, uh, with uh, bodies that had been burned and being around the ghosts. And it was scary. He made it through one night and he thought, okay, I did it. But then he realized he was just kind of gritting his teeth to get through to the end. And it was a child's corpse, so it wasn't so daunting. And he said, no, I've got to do it again. And this next night, it was a, the corpse of a big man. And I'll just read a little bit of his words. 
um, I don't know what it was, but there came a sound of shuffling from the fire behind me. Had the coffin just collapsed? It sounded more like a buffalo walking steadily around. Then it started walking towards me like a person. It must have been a half an hour later when the footsteps started coming back. He didn't know what it was, but this fear in his belief in his existence uh, made Ajahn Chah think of many possibilities. This is him talking again. It got closer and closer until it stopped dead in front of me and just stood still. I felt as if it were waving burnt hands back and forth in front of my closed eyes. I forgot everything else. From the day I was born, I had never experienced such fear. The Buddha and the Dharma had just disappeared. I don't know where. He managed to regain his mindfulness, and then he began to look inward to see where his fear lay. I sat as if I wasn't touching the ground and simply noted what was going on. The fear was so great it filled me like a jar completely filled with water. If you pour water until the jar is completely full and then pour in some more, the jar will overflow. And in the same way, the fear built up so much within me that it reached its peak and began to overflow. What am I so afraid of anyway? A voice inside me asked. I'm afraid of death, another voice answered. Well then, what is this thing, death? Why all the panic? Look where death abides. Why, death is within me. If death is within you, an inner voice said, then where are you going to run to escape it? If you run away, you die. If you stay here, you die. Wherever you go, it goes with you because death lies within you. There's nowhere you can run to. By investigating his fear, Ajahn Chah was able to deal with it effectively and this led to insight. As soon as I had thought this, my perception seemed to change right around. All the fear completely disappeared as easily as turning over one's own hand. It was truly amazing. Non-fear arose in its place. Now my mind rose higher and higher until I felt as if I was in the clouds. That was his turning point moment, coming face to face with fear. Fear isn't the enemy, it's an ally in practice, if you can learn to hold it wisely. So we open up to our fears, we open up to suffering. That's another way that trust and confidence and faith works. We all experience our own measure of suffering. There's no getting around it. And interestingly enough, suffering, again, is a doorway to freedom. In, the, in one of the, the Buddha's lists, it's called Transcendental Dependent Arising. It starts with suffering, and he says, suffering is the causative factor for faith. Now, sometimes that, that can be a little bit hard to understand. Suffering leading to faith. Suffering can lead to a lot of bitterness. It can lead to fear. It can lead to contraction. And we all have seen people that 
have experienced that, and we know that that's probably so for ourselves at times. But when it's held in the context of teachings and practice, (coughs) teachings on the nature of suffering, when we come to terms and we we fully experience suffering for ourselves, not just as a conceptual idea, it breaks open our complacency. It shatters our understanding mind and allows us to give up our knowing, to really look at what life is about. And through that looking, with practice, with a a Dharma practice, and with teachings that can hold and understand the nature of suffering, there is the possibility of coming to the end of suffering. And that trust and faith and confidence allows us to open up to our sufferings, as great as they might be. And there's many people in this room who've experienced great suffering, and somehow their trust in the Dharma and their commitment to keep growing and waking up and finding meaning in their lives is tremendously inspiring and a gift to everyone that they meet. So it gives us courage to open up to fears and to suffering. It also has the quality of allowing surrender. When we have trust or faith, we let go of control. This is not such an easy thing to do, is it? But the truth is, we never had control anyway. So what did we think we were holding on to? And it is so freeing to give up this illusion of control to, to meet the moment as it is. I remember Sylvia has told this story, a story where we, we were both uh, on a retreat. Uh, this is in 1986. Carol was on, on the retreat as well uh, in Hawaii. <clears throat> and uh, we were, uh, it, was, it was a very wonderful meditation center. Uh, uh, rustic, but you know, just raw beauty in nature, right, right on the, uh, right by the, the water. And we got this uh, word that had come over the airwaves. There was a great tidal wave about to come, okay. and they told everybody in uh, on the coast to go inland if they can. And here we were on a meditation center and just kind of no place to go and just lifting, moving, placing, you know, and there. And so instead of, you know, run for the hills, we said, okay, well, let's, we are told, let's just get as high up as we can. Because in that center, there was, the, they were on like stilts and on the second floor was on, on a little bit higher. And we were all just sit there and wait. (laughs) Two of the yogis decided to be more adventurous and they uh, ran out to meet the tidal wave at the the water and sat up in a tree, I think. But but most most the rest of us weren't that adventurous. 
And we were just sitting there, and at one point, Sylvia just reached over and took my hand, and we just sat. What else was there to do, you know? <laughs> Obviously, there was no control, that one. And if we were going to go, we might as well go mindfully, holding hands and feeling our uh, openness to the moment. It was a great, great teaching. That's kind of how life is. When you've done everything you can do, there's nothing more to do except see what's here and try to meet it wisely. And that surrender is an exquisite moment letting go. We let go besides of control, we can let go with trust and with faith of our beliefs, our limiting ideas of who we think we are and how we think it is. I know how it's going to be, you know. I've gone through a lot in my life and this retreat is going to be really awful, you know. (laughs) Or, hey, Life has been good to me. I'm coming in, you know, a magic carpet ride. Here I come, you know. You don't know. I remember when I started practicing, um, I had, uh, a year before I was, uh, uh, I got into practice, I had been in a hospital with uh, with back, uh, with a bad back and in traction and everything like that. And the thought of sitting on a Zafu was just, you know, no way, Jose, right? And I sat in, in, uh, in a chair for about a year until I finally bought a Zafu. And once I invested in it, I thought, okay, now I've got to do it. My $15 at the time the Zafu cost. But I thought I was going to be racked with pain. And... You know, there were, there were pains, but not the ones that I thought. It wasn't in my back, you know. There were, there were other pains, and, and it was completely different than I thought. And actually, those changed too. That's the neat thing. It's this, it's this continual surprise. You never know. And growing up in New York City, as I did, anybody who went through 1969 New York Mets, where they were a million to one to win the, 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 the World Series at the beginning of the season, faith becomes contagious. <laughs> and, uh, and they started winning, and there was this, this one pitcher, Tug McGraw, who coined the phrase, you gotta believe. And all of New York was believing together, you know. And everybody, then the whole country was believing, and they won. <coughs> I believe. <laughs> Anything can happen. On one retreat, I had this, uh, this note I finally wrote to myself. If the thought, nothing's happening, comes, watch out. <laughs> and then, if the thought, it's happening, comes, watch out. Because you don't know. And it's a real freedom in surrendering your limited ideas of how you think it is. It makes it fun because the universe is a lot more creative than matching our ideas and our, our plans. Letting go of figuring out. 
in order to have an insight, in order to see things fresh, in order to have an experience of, aha, it means you've not been able to hold on to your ideas. Because if they work out just the way you thought, all you end up doing is patting yourself on the back saying, pretty clever. But in order to have an experience, ah, aha, it means you are completely free of ideas. The Third Zen Patriarch, again, it says, stop talking and thinking and there's nothing you'll not be able to know. <laughs> there's a surrender also that comes to this lawful unfolding, this perfection that is karma. It's a surrender that there's something greater than us running the show. Kabir says, uh, God can hear the ringing of the anklets of the smallest ant. And whether you call it God or the Dharma or infinite consciousness or the ground of being, the Buddha said if you try to figure out karma, you'll go crazy. But there is a very basic principle that most of us can attest to. There is cause and there is effect. Because of this, this arises. And there is a surrender to the lawfulness of that that allows us to trust. And as we trust, as we let go of running the show, as we are willing to be here and let ourselves be surprised, with that surrender, something magical happens. When you realize you don't have to make it happen, you can just show up, you tap into, you open up to something mysterious, and awesome. Ramana Maharshi says, the real knowledge of self, with a capital S, or not-self, emptiness, with Buddhism, which shines through as the undivided supreme bliss itself, surges up as the nature of love. Ajahn Sumedho, in similar words, talks about the shining through of the divine, these are his words, for a reflection on divinity, we have beautiful selfless qualities that manifest through this human form when there's no self, when you're not caught in ignorance, when all that process of self-use ceases, then the divinity is obvious. Then kindness, compassion, joy, and serenity of mind are not something we have to get, but something that manifests through these forms, the shining through of the divine. I find it extraordinary to reflect on the fact that even with our doubts, even with perhaps a lifetime of self-judgment and doubt that might bring you here and and have you think, who am I kidding? You know, 
What do I think I'm going to do? Even with all the doubts that might come to us, there's something stronger than that lifetime habit of doubt. There's something in us that makes us drawn to do this work, this humbling, daunting, inspiring, profound, awesome work. Something calls us. And right there is that seed of trust and confidence, right in this predicament. What is it that calls us? What is this something? Whether you call it bodhicitta, seed of awakening, you can't pretend that it's not there. And it's right there in the depths of our, of our being. We can't even say that we own it. It's something that just comes through us that gives us no choice but to commit ourselves to waking up. And when, when we have that, and I would trust that everybody on this retreat has that to one degree or another, and some of us have felt it very strongly, then it's really being just discovering itself through this form. Something deep in you is calling you. And when that is connected with, doubt is irrelevant. Because when it's seen in that light, this being is not anything we have to manufacture or build up. It's the natural state of who we are. And it's wanting to shine through. We don't have to worry about it. It's already here. And all we have to do is just keep tuning into it. Keep listening skillfully to that place in us that knows the truth. That's what we're cultivating here. That is something we can trust and have confidence in and have faith in and surrender to. Let's sit for a moment. This talk was given by James Barras at Insight Meditation Society on March 5, 2002. It is an offering of the dark. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.